here for the first time, you have caught us right in the middle of a great, it's been a great series so far in the Gospel of Matthew, which is the first book of the New Testament. Today we're in uh, verses, or chapter 15, verses 21 to 31. Uh, dogs, breadcrumbs, and faith uh, is the passage for uh, the idea today, which I'll uh, talk about here in a minute. But um, we are in this middle portions of the Gospel accounts now where we have been seeing Jesus declare and demonstrate the Gospel of the Kingdom. And, and the Gospel accounts are great passages to read if you're newer to the Bible because they serve as the climax to the whole of the Bible. So in a, lot of, in a lot of passages, we've seen this play out time and time again in Matthew already, Jesus will either quote verbatim the Old Testament or demonstrate in a physical manner how he's fulfilling it, but then also have one eye on the future, one eye on the cross. We're still pre-cross here. So a lot of what Jesus is doing is serving as this middle portion, middle center of genre-wise of the biblical narrative in that he's fulfilling the Old Testament but also setting the stage for the the essence of the New Testament. He is the new thing God is doing. He's the ultimate promise of salvation. He's the ultimate, as 2 Corinthians 1 says, he's the ultimate yes to all of God's promises. God has basically been promising deliverance and salvation and hope all throughout time. Ever since Adam and Eve and the whole world, the whole human race through them have rebelled against God and slapped him in the face and gone their own way God has said, I'm going to stay committed to you, my creation. I love you. I'm going to bring blessing and salvation to the world, beginning through this people, Israel, but it's going to be cosmic and global in scale. And Christ is going to be the ultimate one to fulfill that because he's going to die on the cross for the sins of the world. He's going to bridge that banishment barrier, that sin barrier, that chasm that's fixed and is uncrossable between us and God. So basically, he's been promised. there's many ways that promise plays out and the promises play out in the Old Testament, many different faces to it and words to it, but Jesus is the yes to all of them. And so Matthew then, Mark, Luke, and John, the first four books of the New Testament, the gospel accounts we call them, are the story of Jesus' life and his ministry, his death and resurrection, which serve as that fix, that that way that God is destroying sin and bringing us back to himself. So we're calling the the middle section here, the sub-series, is declaring and demonstrating to get at this idea that Jesus is either talking about all of this or demonstrating it with his physical actions. Huge way to read the Bible, by the way, too. Everything's about Jesus, whether it's explicit in word or implicit in deed or in narrative. Everything's about him. Either it's an implicit shadow of Christ or it's an explicit word or preposition of the cross. There's no third category to the biblical text. It's one of those two categories in the Old or New Testament. So, um, so basically what we've been doing then is seeing Jesus talk in minister and live in this way, that he is here, God God has arrived in him. He is the son of God. He is here to save us from our sins and give us an inheritance in himself, another word for a home, an an eternal life in himself. And along with that, he's been showing us that it's by his righteousness that his work that we're saved, not by ours. So by faith, not by moral law. By grace, not by our working out of that salvation before him. Again, many ways he's talking about this and demonstrating it, but uh, and, and Matthew 15 is going to play into this really beautifully uh, today, today as well. So let's read it to begin. Uh, Matthew 15, 21 to 31. Follow along on screen if, if you want or in a Bible that you have, if you Bible or yours or the uh, sermon inserts um, as usual. Matthew 15, 21 to 31. And Jesus went away from there and withdrew to the district of Tyre and Sidon. And behold, a Canaanite woman from that region came out and was crying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David, and my daughter is 
my daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. But he did not answer her a word. And his disciples came and begged him, saying, Send her away, for she is crying out after us. He answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But she came and knelt before him, saying, Lord, help me. And he answered, It is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. She said, Yes, Lord, yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Then Jesus answered her, O woman, great is your faith. Be it done for you as you desire. And her daughter was healed instantly. Jesus went on from there and walked beside the Sea of Galilee. And he went up on the mountain and sat down there. And great crowds came to him, bringing with them the lame, the blind, the crippled, the mute, and many others. And they put them at his feet, and he healed them, so that the crowd wondered when they saw the mute speaking, the crippled healthy, the lame walking, and the blind seeing. And they glorified the God of Israel. All right, so what we're going to do today is talk about this in, in two manners. We're going to first talk about the broad here. There's just a lot more healing going on. Talk about uh, healings and why Jesus heals physically, mostly as a reminder for us, but for some of you this will be brand new. We're not going to spend a ton of time on it, though. Spend most of our time looking at this Canaanite woman and, and this posture that she has before Jesus and how indicative that is and typical that is of all of lost sinners for all time. And she's a Gentile woman, a non-Jewish woman to do this, which is, in a lot of ways, there's just layers of improperness and scandal that are going on here, but they tell us a ton about salvation, Christ's character, the gospel, as usual, all kinds of things. But it's very unique. Jesus' initial response to this woman being not unresponsive is very unprecedented. There's reasons why he's doing that too, so we'll talk a lot about that this morning as well, a little bit later. But first want to make sure, this is the obvious, but we don't want to, like we do a lot here, don't want to miss the obvious because God speaks to us a lot in the obvious, and it's easy, easy, very easy a lot of times to miss the obvious, but there's just more healings going on here, right? There's a repeated theme of Jesus healing people over and over and over again. And if you've been reading us, reading Matthew or if you're familiar with the Bible up to this point, we're supposed to, especially at this point, halfway through the book, just put our finger on that and say, he's doing this over and over and over again. And take note of it and basically say, God wants me to know this. He wants his church to know that one of Christ's primary characteristics in the Bible is he's a healer. In the Old Testament, God calls himself, that one of his names to Israel is, I am the Lord, the healer. And it's demonstrated here beautifully over and over and over again when Jesus heals all, the breadth of his power too is in scope. When all different types of people, all the lame, all the cripples, all the blind, and it just says, and many others are brought to him. We're supposed to look at that and say, he's not just the healer of the blind. He's not just the exorcist here. He's the one who heals all types of people. There's, there's no malady that the Bible looks at and says Jesus wasn't able to heal this one thing. He's, his breadth of power is in scope. And so it's one of two things we can do with this when we come to repeated themes in the scriptures. We can, we can turn a blind eye to it and say we've read this before and maybe skim these latter ones saying we've read similar things in, in, the, in, the, in the book of Matthew or other places in the Bible already and skim ahead to look for something a little bit different or new thinking that's maybe the most important thing to do in that particular context. Or we can say, again, we can look at it and say, God wants me to know this. He wants to pound into my head that he is a healer and, relatedly, that I am in need. It's very different approaches. And so and it's very easy to take the first one, especially if we're a little bit more seasoned biblically. But at this point, this has happened in a very, very repeated manner. Jesus is constantly being brought people to him. They're being laid at his feet, and he's touching them or just speaking a word, even if they're not near him. And they're 
maladies or their demons or whatever it is instantly go away. So in today's passage, we see a Canaanite woman's daughter miraculously healed and delivered from her demon, and we see Jesus just heal a a number of other people labeled as lame, blind, crippled, and mute. And again, that phrase, it's so key, and many others, just to cover a broad spectrum of all types of sicknesses and diseases he, uh, he heals. And remember our, our greater paradigm for this. Some of you, a lot of you, this will be review, uh, but it's important to do this. And for some of you, this will be uh, brand new, however. Our paradigm for understanding what do we do with these types of gospel stories? Because they're, they're very rarely prescriptive. You very rarely in the gospel see a story like this, and then Jesus say, go and do likewise. Very rarely is it prescriptive. It's, it's rather more commonly, figuratively, descriptive of something greater than it, as, as if it were subservient to something coming later in the story, or symbolic of something greater than they. Huge way God moves in the Bible, by the way. If you're all new to the scriptures, have an eye for that when you're reading it, and as you seek to interpret it by yourself and in community. God is either, like we talked about before, declaring and demonstrating, it's a similar kind of thing. He, a lot of times, especially in the Old Testament, but it's here in the New as well in these narrative portions, He'll use physical things like people and events, different things like that, even just simple mundane things like rocks or buckets of water or bricks or sticks or bigger events as well, but physical things that fall subservient to but you know, serve the purpose of glorifying God, the greater thing, and some greater spiritual reality. Huge way he moves in the scriptures. So if that's the case, then a lot of times, and it's true for Israel, they look at things like bread and buckets of water and rocks and sunrises, and basically conclude that sunrises are more than sunrises. God is the God who made all of these things out of nothing, and he made them to serve him and to point people back to him. So sunrises, seemingly mundane things that we see every day, can tell, this is a greater life principle too, by the way, not just a Bible principle, but a greater life principle. Everything in your life happens for a reason. It does. The Bible teaches everything happens and is God designed for a reason to ultimately, this could be very clear some days and very not clear, maybe never clear in your life. But Christians are called back to this, you know, sovereign, there's a sovereign God out there idea who has orchestrated my life somehow and done things in my life to point me to him. Your life's not about you. It's not about you. It's about God. And God's orchestrating the events in your life and around your life to somehow point you to him. Acts 17 is clear on that as well when he says, when he talks about how the gospel is going forth, in this case to Athens, and Paul preaches and says, you live in Athens because God wanted you to be here to listen to my preaching. Because he wanted you to bring, he wanted to bring you out of darkness into the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. And so even like where people live, you know, is a piece to this as well. But, but going back to today, all that framework is in place and we look at physical healings like this is not just a physical healing, but a reminder that Jesus is on mission to heal on a much bigger level later in the story, namely on the cross when we will heal the world of its sins. That's how we are to approach this. And a bit, there's other ways to look at passages like this, and we'll do some of that today as well as an example. But in general, this is the big way we twist this gospel diamond in the light and see it from a variety of angles. One of the big angles is to see it as typical of a later healing miracle that Jesus does on the cross. So these are wonderful miracles we read about with this Canaanite woman's daughter and all these individuals, blind, lame, mute, you name it, are healed. Wonderful things Jesus is engaged in, but they are lesser than the cross. We have to see them that way or we miss the biggest point the Bible's trying to make. 
about these stories. They are lesser on two levels. One, Jesus never heals everybody physically. But on the cross, he offers salvation to the world for all time. And here in these stories, he's healing physically, but everybody heals physically dies again someday. On the cross, he offers spiritual deliverance from sin, our greatest cancer that's eating away at our bones. See, physical maladies and and ailments are just symptoms of the greater disease. Jesus addresses both, but especially the greater illness, which is that we're banished from God's presence. We're not where he is. We are rejected. We are rebels. We're outcasts. Like Adam and Eve kicked out of the garden in the beginning of the story, we all follow suit. We're all awake. But God is, that's the problem. And hell is, hell ensues. But God is saying, again, like I said before, he stays committed to us. And in love, he's offered to, to fill that chasm with the cross, with his love, with his generosity, with his mercy expressed to us on the cross. And, and the Bible calls that healing, labels it cleansing, labels it healing. This doesn't mean then that Jesus is, that's all important to be said, but it doesn't mean that Jesus is not interested in physical, physical healing. He's obviously engaged in it. And, and a little later in his ministry, he's going to walk out of a tomb after lying in it for three days dead. I mean, that's one of the greatest demonstrations of God caring about physical disease, right? He's actually overcoming death. Death, you could say, is the biggest picture of physical ailment that there is. It's the ultimate sting, right? And so Jesus, being the one who's overwhelmed the grave, tells us that if you trust in me, you have a hope for this as well. But we have to understand that that ultimate resurrection and relief from physical sickness comes through the cross, not around it. Because spiritual healing comes first. Uh, And physical healing can accompany that spiritual healing and does many times, but it's always lesser in this life. As we we long for his return, well, he will speak into tombs, wake us all up from from the earth, bring us before in judgment, and if we're in him, bring us into a salvific inheritance in himself to walk in a new earth and be with him and have our tears wiped away and never to face death again. So we have that ultimate hope, but the the trajectory of it is, is through the cross not, not around it. If we, don't see, if we see it around it, it's easier to place too much emphasis on the physical dimension rather than the spiritual. So we can't miss that trajectory. The forgiveness of sins is the greater healing. It is. It's okay to see that. Uh, all the scriptures are God-breathed, but there are greater things in it than other things. Some things fall subservient to other greater things. And if we don't read it that way, it actually is a little hard, much harder to interpret. Maybe even passages like this. So with this paradigm uh, in mind, uh, that's a little bit of a review on a biblical theology or a greater biblical understanding of physical healing, how it relates to and points ahead to the cross, Old or, in this case, uh, New Testament. But with this paradigm in mind, I think one added a cool thing we get in verse 31 is to see, because not all the physical healing passages of the Gospels record this, but this one does. In verse 31, it talked about how people on the outside of the healings took notice of the changes in the sick and wondered at it and glorified the God of Israel for it. Read verse 31 one more time. Jesus healed so much so that the crowd wondered, and when they saw the mute speaking, the crippled healthy, the lame walking and the blind seeing, and they glorified the God of Israel. So if physical healing is a picture of spiritual healing, this physical wondering is also a picture of, of physical and spiritual wondering on a much greater scale. And that is this, to be clear. When we're healed from our sin and people take note of that life change in our lives after the fact, they too will wonder. They too will glorify God as they see his handiwork. Not all people, 
Some will take offense. Some will write it off as something else. But some will look at your life and say, God did that. Even if they don't know God. There's a lot of people here who are wondering at cripples. Who are Likely a lot of these people that were, were crippled or blind from birth. And all of a sudden they were healed through Christ. They're taking note of this. They're wondering and they're worshiping the God of Israel. So they know they're God-fears a little bit about God. But they're somehow, the point is, they're being led to God through this, through this miracle. The greater fulfillment of all this is this is true for your life. If you are a Christian, the Bible's basically saying you are like a cripple for life that one day got up out of bed and started walking around. But on a much greater scale. So if you're at all public with your faith, and you should be, and I should be, we're all called to be, at all public, in word or in deed, people are likely getting a sense, in a, the aroma of God, the aroma of Christ, a sense for him as they are watching your life, watching you love your husband, love your wife, love your kids, watching you not complain, watching you pray, watching you value gathering with the people of God on a weekly basis and prioritizing that. Watching you see Christ in the things of the world, the details, and making meaning out of it rather than saying it's all chaos, it's all randomness, whatever it is. And a lot of you guys have probably already, already seen this in your life, and for some of you, maybe for all of us, it's unbeknownst to you that people might already be sensing that. I had that happen once in college where I was hanging out with a friend for, uh, he was a classmate of mine at the U of M for a couple of years, and I think about a year in or so I started to share my faith with him. And I barely got a sentence in where he said, oh, I knew you were a Christian. And to this day, I have no idea how he knew. Maybe I said something once or who knows, but there was that powerful moment for me where I realized that that I actually am saved. (laughs) Duh, you know, but still. I actually am saved here, and and I am like a cripple, or I'm like a blind person who's all of a sudden seen, and I'm different. And, And if the Bible's true, then we are actually resurrected now in Christ spiritually. We're like dead people walking around with, with new life. We've walked out of tombs. It's actually real. And God's starting to open the eyes of people around you to get a glimpse of it. It's not enough to be saved, to look at someone and say, wow, maybe there is a God. Or I can't explain the life change I'm seeing based on physical phenomena alone. I want to know more. That's not enough to be saved. You have to know that Christ died for your sins and put your faith and trust in that to be saved. But it's still an avenue, right? It's still a way to get to the truth of the gospel. And I, I can almost guarantee more of you in this room are having that happen around, in your life than you realize. That there's, some, there's things like that happening because the Bible's promising it here. Right? The Bible's promising, I think, a couple of layers to all of this, by the way. One is that you are the cripple, you are the blind, and you're the one Jesus loves. Bad news, good news, that together serve as this foundation for Christianity. If you lose one of those, no more Christianity. If, if God is not loving but we're really sinful, the cross means nothing. If we are not that sinful and Jesus is loving and just everyone's saved no matter what, the cross means nothing. The cross tells us that both are true. We're way more sinful than we, we dare dream or hope or think. But God is way more loving at the same time than we ever dared to dream at the same time. So that's, both those things are crucial and we see it demonstrated here. That's the one piece that we just talked about. But the other layer to this is that God is just saying, let your light shine before men. Matthew 5.17 says that in different contexts, Jesus' words, let your light shine before men that they may see your good works. And same idea here, glorify your Father who is in heaven. So two layer, the first layer here, us being a cripple, Jesus being a lover of cripples and blind people, spiritually speaking like us. We're going to see play out a little bit more here with the Canaanite woman. But before we go on, we just have to see this really special 
insertion of verse 31 that you don't see a lot, where people are taking note here. If it's paradigmatic, if it's symbolic of something greater, and we have to look at stuff like this and say, how is this true spiritually? How is this true now for a spiritual cripple like me walking around seeing, hearing, having my tongue loosed, and all these things that we sing about in songs and spiritual levels and see fulfilled on spiritual levels in the Bible, it's actually true. And go and, go and let your light shine before people. Let your light, with, with word and deed, and just believe that there's already something probably going on in a lot of people's lives as they look at your life. Again, if you're at all public, we're all public to a degree, right? But be all the more public because you have the best news in the world. And just trust that God is already probably working in their lives more than you realize. And maybe not. If they're not, it's fine. But in a lot of cases, um, this, this is a biblical precedent and promise. So it is going, uh, is going to happen. It's quite a help in evangelism and it gives God a ton of glory when you realize it. So pray that as you're living your life in front of people that he would use even just your life before your words to start to give some interest in the things of God. All right, so let's move on and talk more about the first part of this passage, which is a specific instance where a Canaanite woman asks for the deliverance of her daughter, uh, this Gentile, non-Jewish, unnamed woman. One thing to acknowledge right off the bat here is Jesus' apparent coldness to the woman, right? So let me read that one more time to refresh our memory, verses 23 to 26. But he did not, after she approaches Christ and, and begs for her daughter's deliverance and life, but he did not answer her a word. And his disciples came and begged him, saying, Send her away, for she is crying out after us. Which the spirit of that is probably, just heal her, heal her daughter already, Jesus. We've seen you do this a hundred times. She, and then she'll stop bugging us. Just say the word and send her away. It's probably the spirit of what they're saying here. Jesus answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But she came and knelt before him again, saying, Lord, help me. And he answered, It is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. So relatively shocking here, right? I mean, verse 26 here at the bottom, not exactly a verse you see on uh, memory verse programs or Christian bumper stickers or cute little Christian bookmarks or something. Not the first one anyway, a little bit further down the aisle. But... Um, but it's still something Jesus said, right? And we have to, rec- have to reckon with this and understand what is he, everything Christ is doing is intentional. We know in the context of all of this, Jesus is saying things like, I love the world. I love those who are, who are at this moment rejecting me and hating me and who are about to crucify me. I love them. So we know there's compassion and love for this woman, uh, but why does he initially respond this way and then a little bit later turn when, she, when he sees her faith and turn and answer a prayer and heals the little girl. There's always intention with what Christ is doing. So I think I have three things here. There might be some more, but three main things to mention, at least to have in mind when you read uh, this passage. Remember, this is unique. Jesus is always receiving people very rarely. Uh, this might be the only instance in Matthew, actually, where he uh, rejects someone, at least initially. Uh, but it's possible, the first thing is it's possible, probably even likely for Jesus' tone of voice to be very affectionate or gentle, though the words sound colder. So, like an email can be misunderstood today, you know, for the heart of the matter, trying to be communicated, and you realize, I should have called that person, or talked in in person about it because they just misunderstood. It's a similar type of uh, dimension here. So, dog here is a test of faith. It's not an insult to the woman. A test of faith, and more likely demonstrative of a greater theological reality. And so, what is that? Uh, Two layers to it. First is, 
He's embodying this greater theological truth that salvation is from the Jews. John 4, 22. In the book of Acts, it becomes very clear right away after Jesus dies for the sins of the world, raises again, appears to his disciples and hundreds of people, and then ascends to heaven to sit at the right hand of God the Father and reign there before a second return that we all still eagerly wait for. But as that's all happening and the church is enabled by the Spirit to go out and preach to people who are, by the way, saying, wrapped up in all of that is the forgiveness of sins. People are saying, what just happened here? What are you talking about? And the disciples are really clear. This happened in history. Jesus died on a cross and rose again. In that event, if you believe in it, because they ask, what are we supposed to do with that? They, they preach, he preaches facts. And the, the, like, the understand, understandable response is, well, what do we do with it? And Peter says, believe in it. Repent from your sins. Turn from your old way of living and believe that this is actually true and it's sufficient to save you and be baptized. That's his response. So, but as it's all happening, it's, it's, it's clear that it's starting in Jerusalem at Pentecost. All the first Christians are Jews. Then it goes out kind of in concentric circles to all the Judean province or region, to, the, to Samaria. The Samaritans were half-breeds, essentially, half-Jewish, half-Samaritan or, or Gentile, and then to the ends of the earth, uh, to non-Jewish people, all over the Roman world at that time. So you see that trajectory from Jerusalem, and Jesus is clear on this in Acts 1.8. He promises it's going to happen this way. So to say salvation's from the Jews, it's, it's beginning there, but it has cosmic and glo- a global ramifications. So in Matthew 15 then, when the bread, the bread is going to the Jews and the crumbs, which is not a lesser salvation, it's the same bread, but by extension going to the Gentiles, when he talks about that, it's very consistent with this greater reality that we see later uh, post-cross. So in one sense, that's all Jesus is doing. On another layer, uh, two, uh, three weeks ago, when we were back in Matthew on December 15th, I'm just going to brush this today. So if you weren't here, this is a pretty complex matter. Uh, that uh, you can catch up with on our MP3s and our website if you want, but uh, we'll cover the main bases at least here today. But uh, right before this in Matthew, the, the preceding passage, Jesus teaches that nothing outside of you can make you unclean or sinful. Nothing outside of you can make you unclean before God. Only what makes you unclean is the heart. Only things that come from within you is what makes you separated from God and banished from him and hellbound. So what he's basically doing there, he says a lot of things in context about that and what that means as response to that. In Mark's account in the New Testament on that, he adds a clause, a parenthetical. In saying this, Jesus declared all foods clean. And by foods, he's referring to Old Testament foods that God for a time told Israel, eat this, but don't eat this. Separate foods, Israel, because, he's very clear as to why, because I am separating you from the nations. Separate foods and only eat these and don't eat these because I am separating you and claiming you for myself and renaming you and cleansing you and calling you out from darkness into the light. So it was a a physical picture, going back to all we were talking about before of how God moves in in the world, in the Bible, using a physical thing like certain foods to resemble certain types of people. So clean foods were typical of the Jewish people in a sense and unclean foods were typical of Gentile people in another sense. But because it's just a picture and a shadow and a physical thing that's subservient to a greater reality, Jesus is very free, also because he's God and God makes the rules, but he's also free because of that first thing, to change the rules, to change the law. He declares all foods clean. This was true in the Old Testament. It's not true now in the the New Testament. 
But because they were typical of different types of people, when Jesus says, I'm making all foods clean, and because they were typical of certain kinds of people, he's basically saying, all people now are welcome into my presence. Unclean foods or unclean people are now accessible. Are now accessible. They are now in the realm of, of God's saving reach. And they kind of always were, but especially now in Christ, you're going to see a wide influx of Gentile inclusion, non-Jewish inclusion happening. So I'm mentioning all this for context because if Jesus is doing all that, if he's declaring foods clean and not redefining, but especially defining the spirit of these types of teachings and laws in the Old Testament, in some cases abrogating law, all this is happening in context, these deeper theological things, and it would make sense that right after that, we would see Jesus interact with Gentiles. Right? He's not doing, just doing that this week. He's going to do it next week as well when he feeds the 4,000, all Gentiles, and take this so-called Gentile tour, as a lot of New Testament uh, scholars like to call it, because he's just made it very clear that things are changing. And on top of that, dogs are unclean animals in the Old Testament. So this really cool added layer here of Jesus making it all the more clear by calling the woman a dog, saying, you who once were far off, you who once were alienated from God, you who were once were, were not a part of the covenants of promise, now the final yes has found, it's, the final promise has found its yes in Christ. I'm here, and I'm redefining things around myself, and now I'm going to include people like this Gentile dog woman, unclean, like someone like us, now has access to, to God. Isn't that cool? So a lot of layers here find its fulfillment in, uh, in Christ. That's another reason why he's talking the way he is. He, he doesn't just randomly pull out the word dog from the air. It's an unclean animal related to what he just taught about in the early part of, of Matthew 15. All right. So that addresses Jesus' apparent coldness on a couple of levels, but the bigger thing that we should be focusing on and astonished by, because Jesus is astonished by it, is the woman's faith. Her just simple faith and her persistence before Christ. If you want to know uh, what astonishes God in the Bible, what makes him pause, what makes him turn his head, how you please God. Some might be wondering that today. How do I please God? You spent your whole life trying to please him. The answer is always, resoundingly, faith. Simple dependence on him, not in yourself. This makes Jesus stop and stand in amazement at the woman's faith. And he rewards her for it. Elsewhere in the Gospels, you see the same thing where he'll say, how great is your faith? Now how great are you? How great is your trust in me? And he rewards that. It's a small picture of how we are then now able to access God similarly. But let me read again, verses 26 to 28. And he answered, Is it not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs? It is not right. Verse 27, She said, Yes, Lord, yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Then Jesus answered her, O woman, great is your faith. Be it done for you as you desire. And her daughter was healed instantly. So the woman understands quite a bit here about Jesus and the nature of God's promises in the Old Testament. We don't know exactly how she gained this knowledge. She's a Gentile. She's a woman, likely very uneducated, but she did. She understands things like he's the son of David. He's the son of this promise in the Old, this, this king in the Old Testament. God gave this promise to say, I'm going to send one in the line of David who's going to resemble him, who's going to reign forever, unlike David. And he's going to destroy the enemies of God's people, bring eternal peace and provision, all these things good kings do, and David did in the Old Testament, but now on high, higher spiritual plane. She also understands 
that salvation is going to go to the ends of the earth. Hence the breadcrumbs comment, like we just talked about. She gets that. Maybe not completely, but she understands that God's working through the Jews in the Old Testament was just a harbinger of a greater global reality. She got that. And it was possible to get, because God spoke in very clear global terms and sin-related terms, spiritual terms in the Old Testament to make it clear that the Jews were not different, really, than anybody on the planet. They were just this small theater that the world could look at and watch God interact with throughout Old Testament times and say, I'm just like them. I'm like them in their sin. I'm like them in their separation from God. I'm like them in their uncleanness. But I'm also like them in the fact that God loves them deeply and is committed to them, is covenanted with them. They're just theater for the historical conscience of the world, John Piper has once said, which I like that uh, image. But anyway, she gets that. God's working through the Jews is just typical. And then lastly, she understands that faith is how we're saved. Faith in God's saving work is how we're saved. She believes that Jesus is very simply able to heal, able to save, able to deliver. And it's central to the storyline too, by the way. Not a passing detail. We get that in the narrative, right? It's very clear that when this woman expresses faith and persistence the way she does, that's the hinge in the story. Up to that point, the daughter's not healed. But because a woman is just simply broken before Jesus, persistent before him, asking him for help on a very simple level, and in that way has trust in him, believes he's able to do it, and she isn't and no one else is, then the whole thing shifts, right? Then it changes. Then Jesus says, oh, woman, great is your faith. That's the climax of the mini-narrative here. Healing occurs and, and all is well, right? It's a little mini-climax. So faith is the crux before Christ of the whole storyline. And also remember that when we see the presence of faith in the Bible, this is a, a huge additional, uh, been a couple of these today, huge additional how to read the Bible type moments um, where you can just look at and say, if I'm reading narrative, especially in the gospel accounts like this where faith is very prominent, a lot of times the, the theme of faith, the word of faith, one thing to do is not just read what's written about faith. This could be true for different themes, I suppose, as well but also read in the literary device kind of manner what's not said. What's the opposite of faith and what's left out? What do you maybe expect the woman or people like the woman to be like and she wasn't? Or in what case just isn't there? I mean, a lot of times the white space, in other words, speaks just as much as the black lettering of the biblical text. And it's a literary device that God employs a lot to speak to us. And so when you see the presence of faith, then in other words, also look for the demonstrated theme of the absence of the opposite of faith, which is works. And a lot of times there's power in that. In this, in this case, I think what this woman is doing is demonstrating, this is the important word for today, demonstrates this posture of saved sinners for all time. So like the woman and her daughter, we too are saved by God's grace, kneeling simply at the feet of God, begging for mercy saying, Lord, help me. In other words, we're not saved by our works. The Bible is very clear here to describe this woman and the sick around her as in a very hopeless, irrecoverable situation in human terms. It's impossible for her and her daughter to be saved, but not with God. Her daughter is wickedly possessed, some translations say, seriously possessed by a demon, irrecoverably so. In the latter paragraph, every type of illness imaginable is listed. And on top of that, she's a Gentile woman. Like I said before, lots of impropriety going on, lots of scandal, lots of these types of people just weren't allowed, even these parts of town, let alone to be 
close to these Jewish men like this, and Jesus, the son of David, Messiah, this prophet. Lots of layers of improperness and all of that that are just pushed to the side. And Jesus looks past all of that, sees her faith, and, and heals. So she's not approaching Jesus then. I'd look at it this way as well. Uh, again, this is similar to looking at it in the white space terms, but it can also be helpful to ask what's said, but again, what, what's, what's not said here? It doesn't say a Jewish man full of riches, intelligence, wisdom, and righteousness approached Jesus, and Jesus stood in amazement at his righteousness. Right? It says Gentile woman approached Jesus full of hopelessness, filth, sorrow, simplicity, and sin. Yet she had faith. And Jesus stood in amazement, but not of her righteousness, right? Of her faith. Jesus stood in amazement when she embodied and he could peer into her soul and see that she believed that he was sufficient and that she wasn't. That's what he stood in amazement of. And that's what he stands in amazement of in your life as well. That's the only way to please God is with faith, the Bible says. Hebrews 11.6. We can't please God without trust in him, without faith in him. Everything proceeds from that. There's no pleasing of God with our righteousness or our works. We jettison that. We cast them as though they're crowns that we used to wear in our old life that weren't really crowns, but we thought that they were before the cross and come empty-handed, not with clenched fists around our trophies. So here's the, here's the key. So is it true for you today and for me? It's the most freeing news ever and most glorious news ever. And here's the question. Is this woman indicative of the posture, the salvific posture that you have before a holy God or not? Don't be too quick to answer yes. Some of you just did. That's okay. Praise God. But at the same time, don't be so quick to answer yes. Bible's very, very careful about this question, this precise one, in saying to Christians, examine yourself on a daily basis to make sure you're in the faith. Do you ever do that, Christian? Do you ever examine your heart and ask, do I really, am I really like this woman? Am, am I at all, is there a, a, a drop in the bucket of my soul that's like the top paragraph? At all, in any way at all, just a whiff of it. When we examine our hearts and look at our souls, I mean, the answer is, is always yes. For all of you in the room, the answer is yes. The answer for me, yes. But that's what we have to address and kill and be saved from. Jesus died for the top paragraph. He bled on a crooked, bloody cross for you and me out of love because we all approached God like that with that type of mindset. I'm not perfect, God, but I'm pretty great. Are you approaching God with a Lord help me like the woman? Or is the essence of your spirituality, God, what can I do for you today? How can I serve you? Not maybe a terrible question, but a lot of times misguided. A lot of forms of Christianity are very based these days, culturally for us, based around long lists of what God wants me to do today. We might not even be thinking I'm saved by that, but, but essentially the, the list is, this is what God has for me. It's very specific and detailed, and it's about serving God. But actually, the idea of serving God in the New Testament is not very common as you think. Uh, we're called servants of God, and there are, there are places where we talk about where the Christians are called, the church is called to serve other Christians and be servants of God as we proclaim the gospel to a lost world. But the Bible is also very clear, you don't serve God. Don't really, in an ultimate sense, don't ever think that you can serve him. God serves you on the cross. 
Mark 10.45 says, The Son of Man, Jesus, did not come into the world to be served by us. He came to serve us by dying on a cross for our sins and giving his life over as a ransom for many, as a ransom to buy us back from sin and death. Every other world religion says that we serve God. Christianity says, no, you can't. You're too dead for that. God has come into the world to serve you. So, see, if that's the case, if Christianity is all about that, then it's going to be about resting in and believing in, falling at the feet of Jesus Christ like the woman and saying, God, help me. God, serve me. God, cleanse me. God, ransom me back. Buy me back from something because I can't. If you're all like the top paragraph, if you think that you ultimately serve God, you'll be a million miles from that. We all will. We won't be thinking about the cross in the right terms. We'll be thinking about ourselves as pretty good people uh, being tweaked about 10 degrees to live better lives uh, by a, a moral influence that we call Christ. That's where we'll end up. might not start there, but it's a slippery slope. We might start basically, you know, here, but it's kind of like, you know, one of those diagrams where you start about this far apart here, you know, at the, the crux of the situation, but, you know, five miles down the road, you're, you're way far, you're just a million miles from the gospel of Christ. So we have passages like this in the Bible that either tell us, in this case, demonstrate beautifully that we're saved by God's grace in the world, not by what we do. So it's an invitation for all of us. Some of you have never heard the gospel in that manner before. Others of you maybe think you're Christian, but you're realizing that you're not. Because you're a little bit more, Christianity for you is about just being a good servant of the Lord. It's not really basking in the fact that God is the the servant. And in that case, the great one. God is the dyer. God God is the slayer. God's the forgiver. God's the generosity shower. God's the hospitality one. He's the the servant. That's Christianity. That's what makes it different from everything else, every other philosophy, and it just crushes them all. God's design, it's by that, so it would be different. It's not just the same. So the invitation here is to, to rest in that, like a, a Barrent, if you guys were here last week, Luke 10's big on this too. Great passage in Luke 10 where Mary and Martha, the sisters, uh, are, in one case, Mary's case, just sitting at Jesus' feet, like the woman here, the Canaanite woman. Martha, her sister, is working very hard to clean the house up for him and pretty angry that Mary's not helping her clean and expresses that to Jesus. But Jesus says, Mary's in the right when she's doing nothing before me. Martha's in the wrong trying to serve me on, on basically her own strength and being anxious about that. It's, it's basically pictures of two types of spiritualities, works-based, grace-based. Rest-based in Mary, in Martha's case, I serve God. You see the difference? All of the scriptures are set up for this. There's no such thing as a passage of scripture or genre that does not somehow fall subservient to this greater message that God is screaming to a dead and dying world, dead and dying people like us. He's, he's resurrecting us through this good news. Believe this today. For the first time or a millionth time, it doesn't matter. The point is, God wants us to know this and the Canaanite woman to see a posture that we're being called to and saved to embody and actually bring salvation. It's by faith. Oh man, oh woman, oh Christian, oh non-Christian, great is your faith, Jesus will say, and he will instantly heal you of your sin forever and it will never be taken away. Ever. Glory to God in that. Rest in that. Find tons of joy in that. And I'm going to read John 6:51 here to close, and we'll pray. And we're going to respond in that uh, through a couple of songs here today and, uh, and pray before that. Let me read this. John 6:51. I am the bread that came down from heaven. Jesus' words. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of my world 
Life of the world is my flesh. Let's pray. God, thank you for John 6.51. Thank you for the gospel in it. Thank you for the gospel in Matthew 15.21. Thank you for the gospel in the food laws. Thank you for the gospel in the early parts of Matthew 15. Thank you for the gospel in Ephesians 2. Everywhere, everything we looked at today, it's about the cross ultimately. And we thank you for that. Thank you that it just screams to us from the mountaintops that uh, we are sinners, we are unclean, we are the dogs. Uh, we are the ones separated from you. Uh, but you're the one that loves us at the same time. God, help us to hold in the balance those true, great gospel truths, theological truths that enable us to approach you. Uh, Without one of those or both of those, we're hopelessly lost. God, so just thank you that you have uh, healed us of our demons. You've healed us of our blindness. You've touched us. You've spoken a word, and you've taken it all away. And as the scriptures say in the Psalms, you've forgotten them. You've removed them, our sins from us, as far as the east is from the west. That's what you do for weak and wounded, sick and sorry sinners like us. Thank you that you love us and you've expressed that love for us. Not just that we have the facts of your deliverance, but we actually have love in all those things. You show your love for us in this, that while we're still sinners, Christ died for us. Praise God. And thank you that the scriptures tirelessly proclaim it. And forgive us, God, for uh, looking elsewhere for deliverance and for joy and for something a bit more new and fresh and meaningful Uh, No pleasure of life will ever outweigh the pleasures of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And again, no threat of life can ever really threaten to take it away either. God, it is truly the bookends of our experience as human beings, as Christians in particular. So, God, save more. Let the light of the, the glory of the gospel of Christ shine before more men and women in South Minneapolis and beyond. May may they see the gospel at work, raising up dead people from the earth like us, seeing a change, getting a whiff of salvation and asking about it. And I pray all this to you in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Yes, let's stand and respond together.